I thus address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention, so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great, and as I believe, happy majority. Welcome to Becoming Barnum, the journey to fame and fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and based on their award-winning blog series. Support for this project is presented to the Barnum Museum from the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The Barnum Museum has a special treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to high society and royalty, as well as millions of ordinary people. Barnum's lively letters to friends, family members, and business associates reveal him more completely as a person at times struggling mightily to make the three-year tour a success, all the while directing the management of his American museum from afar. They also offer insights into Barnum as a husband, father, and nephew, and as a mentor to the child actor-entertainer whose popularity resulted in their meteoric rise to fame and fortune. In his mid-30s at the time, Barnum proved himself a tireless go-getter, calculating risk-taker, and astute entrepreneur decades before his name was attracting crowds to the greatest show on earth. These letters offer a window into the hard-scrabble era of show business, revealing how Barnum went about acquiring, hiring, and commissioning attractions, and promoting his museum and the General Tom Thumb Tour in Europe. Join us as we travel back in time to learn, through Barnum's own words, about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum. A Jolly Lot of Brother Showmen. Slipped in among P.T. Barnum's business and personal letters in his 1845 to 1846 copybook, are some of his lengthy epistles to the editors of the New York Atlas, for whom Barnum was acting as a foreign correspondent. The letters provide descriptions of places and people he saw in his travels throughout Great Britain and France. Aside from the very first episode in this series, our curator Adrian St. Pierre skirted the letters to Atlas when choosing topics to write about. Don't get me wrong, they do contain interesting information, but Barnum's voice is different in these letters. He was, after all, writing for an audience, as opposed to writing to individuals. Since our goal has been to reveal Barnum as himself, not through his public self-presentation, we opted to hop over the Atlas letters. However, this week, we came across one we think listeners will particularly enjoy for the information about circus and menagerie showmen, as well as other famous entertainers whose names would be familiar to many in Barnum's time. This letter was written on November 11, 1845, from the Hotel Bedford in Paris. Barnum made a particular note to the Atlas editors, 
Frederick West, John Ropes, and Anson Herrick that this was a supplement independent of and unconnected with my regular series of letters. Further, he asked that they please publish it and get it off your hands, although you have on hand about a score of my unpublished letters of an earlier date. The information he was providing was, as we would say today, time-sensitive, and Barnum realized that delaying publication by a few weeks would reduce its impact. The seven-page letter is chock-full of crossed-out phrases, insertions, and crooked lines, and the content is wide-ranging, altogether too much for one episode. So, for now, we will just explore the entertainment-related tidbits. Barnum started off by telling the Atlas audience, I was in London a couple of weeks ago and found much enjoyment in calling on old friends. My pleasure was not a little, though unexpectedly, enhanced by falling in with a jolly lot of brother showmen. Among these were Major Titus, the Leviathan showman, one who has made and kept more money than a horse can draw, and who, like Mr. Brown, does not mean to give it up so. Then, who else should I find but General Rufus Welch, the man who has scoured the world in search of and to exhibit novelties? The generous Welch, who has got a heart like an ox, and is never happy unless he can see all happy around him. Then there was Carter, the Lion King. In fact, he may be called king of all animals, for he confines himself no longer to lions alone, but is at home with animals of every description, wild or tame, savage or domestic. The Carter whom Barnum referred to was James, also known as John, Carter, who was both a competitor and successor to the more famous Lion King, Isaac Van Amberg, whose terrifying shows with ferocious lions had captivated audiences at Astley's Royal Amphitheater in London for years. The two also performed together in stage productions that brought biblical scenes to life with actual wild animals. Carter, who was the younger of the two, imitated Van Amberg's dramatic style, but his lion taming never received the same acclaim. Nevertheless, feeding a voracious public appetite for these spectacles, Carter starred in many heart-stopping performances with beasts, including a Brazilian tiger and a black tiger, today known as a jaguar and panther, respectively. Barnum may have been referring to Carter's work with a full menagerie in a spectacle called Afghan, which began in 1839. In addition to lions, the animals included tigers, leopards, and crocodiles, plus tamer sorts such as ostriches, zebras, and horses. In the Atlas letter, Barnum touted Carter's extraordinary animals, announcing to his readers, Indeed, he is at this moment the owner of the largest horse and largest dog in the world, besides any quantity of lions, tigers, etc. Carter's big horse, which he has named General Washington, is indeed a magnificent animal, and one of the greatest curiosities I have seen this many a day. He is five years old, beautiful in all his proportions, is near 21 hands high, and weighs 3,000 pounds. He is a hoss, and no mistake. Barnum then related some curious details about the man's idiosyncrasies and an incident in London. In fact, Carter is so much of an animal man that he wears a breastpin vivant, being nothing more nor less than a beautiful little dog half as big as your fist, which he has constantly lodged in his bosom, its little head, bright eyes, and pretty ears sticking out of Carter's vest, as large as life and twice as natural. 
Carter called in at Spillman's, the Yankee headquarters in the Strand, the other day. What a beautiful breastpin you have got, said Mary. It looks as natural as life, at the same time putting her finger on the head of the little dog, which she thought was alive. The breastpin barked. Mrs. Spillman screamed and fainted, and I need not add that Carter, the cruel wretch, laughed. Discussion of Major Titus the Leviathan Showman was next in Barnum's letter. According to circus proprietor William Cameron Coop, 1836 to 1895, in his book Sawdust and Spangles, Louis Titus was among the original American circus showmen to show under canvas tents in the early 19th century. This was in the upstate New York counties of Westchester and Putnam, adjacent to Connecticut's western border and thus not too distant from Barnum's hometown of Bethel. That area is steeped in circus and menagerie history, and among the men who chose those livelihoods, competitors often became partners, and partnerships formed and dissolved as circumstances dictated, feast or famine. So it was in North Salem, New York, that Titus and two other showmen, John June and Caleb Angevine, formed June, Titus, Angevine and Company. The business of their menagerie company included capturing exotic wild animals on the African continent, both for their own shows and to sell to others. Again, according to Coop, this company was the first to acquire wild animals on their own account. Prior to this, Titus and his first partner, James Raymond, purchased animals from sea captains who speculated on selling exotic species in European and American ports. As Barnum's commentary implies, in the menagerie business, not all the animals were captured live. Undoubtedly, many died after capture during transport. But businessmen still made their money by selling stuffed specimens. Titus and Welch have both gone to America. The former has stuffed animals enough to stock the Rocky Mountains if he would let them all loose. To get some of these animals, he and Van Amberg have been to Africa. Titus has besides shipped eight of the mammoth Flemish horses, which are so celebrated as being used by the colliers and brewers in and about London. They will cut a swell in America. They must necessarily fill a large space in the public eye, for they are the biggest horses ever seen on the American continent but they are Tom Thumbs by the side of Carter's mammoth. Barnum's next descriptions are focused on General Welch and more about horses. Rufus Welch, 1800-1856, was another famous showman in his day, and he too was from New York State. He made a name for himself in the late 1830s, being the first person to show giraffes in the United States, three of them called camel leopards at that time. On equestrian topics, the heart of historical circuses, Barnum wrote, General Welch has engaged, among other novelties, the famous and beautiful female rider Mademoiselle Camille Roux, whose graceful, daring, and unequaled riding I mentioned in one of my first letters from Liverpool nearly two years ago. These two frouzy old bachelors, Titus and Welch, have been taking lessons at the Hippodrome in Paris, and now they have lashed on their armor and are prepared to carry all before them next year in America. If they can manage to keep a respectful distance apart, and like the potentates of different peaceful kingdoms will cultivate friendly relations, it will all be very well. But if these two mammoth caterers happen to clash and have a war to the hilt, the public may have the fun, but the devil will take the hindmost of the showmen. 
Turning to stories of some unusual performing ponies, Barnum referred to Richard Dick Sands, who was both a circus equestrian performer and circus manager. Sands is credited with bringing the first complete American circus to Europe. Barnum provided a lively description to his readers. Then, to make the horse war still more interesting, Dick Sands has shipped a wilderness of ponies to America, and these little chaps will prove the biggest attraction in the lot, if all reports are true about them. A gentleman who has seen them perform says that they can do everything but speak. One pair of these ponies are pugilists. They are named after the two celebrated boxers Tom Spring and Deaf Burke, that is, James Deaf Burke. They are provided with boxing gloves and enter the ring. They square off, and after several false motions and a good deal of fighting shy, Mr. Pony Burke hits Mr. Pony Tom Spring, and a ruse in his breadbasket which floors him. Another pony, his second, picks him up, and when time is called, quick as thought, Tom Spring is on his legs again, his hind legs only, and is again squaring off and giving some of the fancy licks. Presently, Deaf Burke is floored, and he in turn comes to time, and thus these quadruped pugilists continue in sport, which I always thought was more appropriate for beasts than men. The reference to calling time is interesting because the London prize ring rules had relatively recently been introduced in human boxing matches and were developed partly in response to a tragic incident involving bare-knuckle fighter Deaf Burke. Famous as he was, Deaf Burke was imprisoned for a time after his opponent's death from the inflicted injuries. Acquitted, he went to America in 1836 to escape notoriety and because no one in Great Britain would fight him. But he eventually returned to England, at age 35, in the same year that Barnum penned this letter, Burke died of tuberculosis and in poverty, though his name remained legendary. Dancing horse stories follow the description of boxing ponies. Barnum compares the grace of dancing horses to two illustrious ballerinas of the era. Swedish-born Marie Taglioni, said to be the first to dance en point, and Fanny Elsler of Austria. Further on, Barnum mentions Richard Risley, Richard Risley Carlyle, a New Jersey native and equestrian acrobat whose performances in Europe and the U.S. were beyond compare. Then Sands has got dancing ponies, he has 18 or 20 in all, and military ponies who go through the broadsword exercises, fire guns, feign dead, etc. Other ponies play at leapfrog, and he introduces the hurdle races, copying from the hippodrome, where all the riders are monkeys, and lots of sport do they make. The most curious and astounding of all the curiosities in the equestrian line shipped to America have been purchased by Sands, that is to say, the two famous dancing horses from Franconi's Circus. One of these horses, formerly the property of Baron Rothschild and trained by the celebrated Boucher, who has frequently danced them before the king, actually dances a set piece of music of such great length as to require half an hour for its performance. The other horse dances the polka mazurka, etc., and handles his legs with the grace of Elsler or Taglioni. The prelude to each dance is marked with all the graceful attitudes and the killing fashion of sticking out the leg, practiced by the most accomplished danseuse. Sands has been very successful in the performance with his boys a la Risley, and has coined upwards of a considerable in France, Belgium, and Germany, 
while Risley has done the same thing in Austria, Russia, etc. Concluding the circus and menagerie stories, Barnum reveals his self-interest in the promotion of the many wonders about to arrive on American shores. On the whole, my brother showmen are doing themselves great honor in their shipments to America, and I have too much friendship to desire to put them all to shame, which I really should were I to tell them what I have shipped from France and England to be brought out at the American Museum for the holidays. However, my friend and American Museum director Hitchcock will divine that secret all in good time, and being too modest myself to say anything more about it, I drop the subject. Maybe not so modest, but willing to share the limelight, perhaps because wetting the public's appetite for novel entertainments was good for all showmen, himself included. Grand Agent Yankee Showman Our most recent episodes have not said much about General Tom Thumb, and perhaps you are wondering what he has been up to. We have, too. Curiously, Barnum's correspondence from the latter half of November 1845 says little about General Tom Thumb, even though he was the reason Barnum was in Europe. Instead, Barnum's recent letters have focused on other facets of his business and his excitement about potential new attractions. But now, drawing to the end of the month, the career of his young protege, Charles Stratton, has come to the fore once again in Barnum's letters. The general had arrived in Paris, with only about three weeks until Barnum intended to conclude the tour of France and return to England. He would need to have profitable engagements ready to go in London. To his credit, Barnum had not procrastinated in this critical preparation work, but things hadn't fallen into place as readily as he'd hoped. He'd left the south of France in late October to make a brief trip to London with the plan to book Egyptian Hall, a multi-purpose exhibition space. This would be for the general's day and evening appearances, called levies. Barnum was also ferreting out other opportunities. For example, he wrote to theater directors to suggest that an appearance by Tom Thumb would be the perfect addition to their Christmas pantomimes. Pantomimes were the traditional fare during the holiday season. These performances, generally having only a loose plot, were easily adapted to include another actor, or, in this case, even a display like the general's equipage of miniature carriage, coachman, footman, and ponies. Barnum was certain they would be a hit. But almost a month had passed since those letters were penned, and it seems Barnum realized he would need to hire an agent to make headway in confirming engagements for the holiday season. On November 19th, while in Paris, he wrote to a Mr. Fillingham, addressing him familiarly as Phil. Barnum must have thought that flattery, infused with humor, would help his cause. He laid it on thick at the beginning and conclusion of the letter. Dear Phil, inasmuch as you are, and no mistake, at present the only great and true representative of the Yankee showman's interests in London, or in fact in England, I, as a member of that humble but honorable profession, at once hasten to engage your services in the cause of the illustrious General Tom Poose. We intend to arrive in London about the 19th of December and perform twice a day, or rather once a day and once in the evening at Egyptian Hall, finishing evening performances at 9 o'clock. And we wish the general to perform each evening in a theater, either in the Christmas pantomime or any piece which the managers choose to put him in. 
always understanding that he begins at 9 and finishes at 10 and a half o'clock. Barnum wanted Fillingham, acting as his agent, to negotiate for the best possible arrangements. He had been optimistic in thinking they could earn 50 pounds a night, but found that was a non-starter with directors, and so had revised his thinking on the matter. He realized he might have to accept half the amount. In consideration that it will not interfere with Tom Thumb's evening performances at Egyptian Hall, we have concluded to take 25 pounds per night, but wish you to try very hard for 30 pounds. The time frame in which Barnum was dealing with London theaters is quite interesting from an historical point of view, as the early decades of the 19th century disrupted many of the traditions and practices of the theater world. London's population was burgeoning at that time, and the demand for entertainment exceeded the capacity of the existing theaters, which had always been highly regulated. Generally speaking, theater entertainment at that time fell at two ends of the spectrum, one serious and the other seedy, the latter often being for rowdy crowds and sometimes held in places where prostitutes regularly found customers. Licensing laws had limited which theaters could offer serious works, such as Shakespeare, and the seasons during which certain theaters could operate. But these laws began to change. In addition, the ways in which plays and other entertainments were presented to audiences rapidly evolved in conjunction with redesigned interiors and the construction of new theater buildings. According to Jackie Bratton, author of the article Theater in the 19th Century, published on the British Library's website, Parliament changed a law in 1843, just two years before the letters we are reading, to allow all theaters to present serious plays, an effort to try and educate the new urban masses. As a result, theaters began springing up in the West End of London, though most were not offering the quality entertainments that members of Parliament had hoped would be the case. Musical entertainments, farcical plays, burlettas, comedies, and melodramas were the popular choices. This was the highly competitive, hustle-bustle world in which Barnum was making arrangements for General Tom Thumb to perform. Barnum's first choice was to have Charles Stratton perform at the respectable and elegantly appointed Princess Theatre on Oxford Street, which had been converted from a diorama building into a theater in the 1830s. Barnum had written to the lessee director John Maddox Maddox with a proposal. Now he wanted Fillingham to call on him for his answer. If Maddox was not agreeable to 30 pounds per night, he advised, then agree to 25 pounds, provided he would engage for eight or 12 nights certain, and allow them the right to appear at other theaters on evenings when not engaged at the princess. Barnum added, His equipage, coachman, and footman can appear in the piece, and a five-score of pantomime in which they have played with the general can be introduced, in which a great deal of fun is made. In fact, the general would be first-rate in the Christmas pantomime, because he could be made to appear and disappear in such small places. Fillingham must have praised a new theater in a previous conversation or letter, as Barnum agreed it might be a good alternative should Maddox decline the proposal, but the name of that theater was not mentioned. Barnum knew that certain other theaters, Haymarket, Adelphi, and Drury Lane, had finished their arrangements for the season, but speculated that the Surrey or City Theater, or perhaps the Adelphi, would work him into their pantomime, 
in case you don't arrange with Maddox or the new theater in your quarter. Now, old Phil, I hope you can convince some managers of what is really the fact. That is to say, it will be much to his advantage to engage the general and boys for the holidays. Further, he added, If you can arrange with any theater, I will come right over and see to getting up the piece, or the general's part of it, and he himself will be able to rehearse from 17th December to Christmas, or, if necessary, he can be in London 15th December. Barnum concluded the letter, I trust you will exercise your usual generalship in this matter, and thus prove yourself worthy of the immortality which must, in the ordinary course of nature, attach itself to the name and office of the grand agent of the Yankee showman. This same letter also mentions Sands and Risley, the two showmen described in A Jolly Lot of Brother Showmen. Also on November 19th, Barnum primed Maddox, writing to him that Mr. Fillingham would call upon him for his answer. He began, As we are both men of business, and, like all men, look to our own interests, there can be no harm in trying once more to unite our forces, provided such an arrangement can be mutually beneficial. He also plumped his proposal to have Tom Thumb appear with his equipage in a pantomime, noting that the coachman and footman could introduce, with the general, a splendid and laughable scene, which they have appeared in 87 times in Paris, Brussels, Bordeaux, Marseille, Lyon, etc., etc. Even allowing for the fact that the number 87 might have been an exaggeration brought to mind a question that has nagged us for a while. How did this seven-year-old boy ever get enough rest? With plans for daytime and evening levies each day, followed by late evening theater performances, it seems Charles would rarely have had any playtime, let alone adequate sleep. The letter to Maddox does offer a bit of explanation. Barnum noted that if he, Maddox, agreed to the arrangement, we should only lose our morning exhibition from 11 to 1, so as to give the general a chance to sleep later in mornings. While making plans for London, Barnum still had a thorny issue to resolve in France. He had signed treaties, or contracts, with theaters in several other cities and needed to find a way out of these obligations. At a minimum, his reputation was at stake, but it was also possible he would have tangled with the law had he tried to simply leave the country with the entourage, not having done right by the theaters. Barnum had already sent letters to his men instructing them that Charles should not under any circumstances play Petit Pousset after leaving Lyon, as Barnum would need to put forth the story that Charles was not well enough to meet the demands of performing the play, and that his delicate health would necessitate cutting their tour short. His letter to the director of the theater in the city of Nancy explained, Owing to the cold weather and ill health of Tom Pousse, he is not able to play Petit Pousset anymore this winter, and therefore we cannot fulfill the treaty with you. I have given you legal notice to this effect, and required you to send a medicine to examine him if you choose. We leave for England and America on the 12th of December, and shall probably not return to France within less than two or three years, if ever. We do not wish to have it said that we leave dishonorably. It proves a great loss of money to us in not being able to fulfill the treaties in Nancy, Strasbourg and Bruxelles, Anvers, etc. But of course, we cannot control the health of the general. The vaudeville has tried to hire the general to play Petit Pousset, but he cannot do it and will not play it again in France on account of his health. Barnum's statement that they stood to lose a lot of money by not fulfilling the treaties was not true, 
or not likely to have been true, if one believes what he told his uncle Allenson Taylor in a letter dated November 24th. He wrote, For although I don't wish it known, I have made but very little with the general lately. Barnum was, however, doing well enough that he could afford to buy some costly novelties and attractions for the American Museum, and had also said he would not prevent his wife purchasing an expensive house in Bridgeport, if that was what she really wanted to do. Comparatively speaking, Barnum found that making a profit in France was much harder than in England, where he had quickly been able to pile up the tin. Evidently, Barnum was more than ready to return to London for financial reasons, but he also hinted to Fillingham that there were personal reasons, and he hoped Phil would find it highly necessary to insist that he come to London. What was the magnet drawing him there? Another mystery to solve as we go further along with the letters. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. This podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum. All episodes are based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre, curator of the Barnum Museum. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pino and narration by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director and John Swing is our chief operations officer. Please visit our website at www.barnum-museum.org to learn more about the museum. Don't forget to connect with us on social media and visit the Barnum Museum's YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our fascinating collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures in Europe with P.T. Barnum.